Well, good morning. What an honor and a privilege to be with you here at First Baptist Church, Norman, Oklahoma. Wade, thank you for the uh, invitation to be here. As he said, we go back. We just pieced it together. That was 20 years ago. This summer is our friendship anniversary. Uh, so glad to be with you. If you heard in the introduction, if you were paying attention, that's not a typo. My wife, I grew up in Murray, Kentucky in a small town. My wife and I spent 14 years pastoring a church, a church plant there in Jamaica, Queens, New York City. And then we moved from Queens, New York City to Coleman, Alabama. <laughs> that really happened. And uh, uh, people always ask me the same thing. They always want to know the same thing. They say, how has the transition been from Queens, New York City to Coleman, Alabama? And I always have the same answer. For my wife and for me, it's not that big a deal. I grew up in a small town. My wife is from Coleman, Alabama. If you're wondering how that happens, yeah, we've come full circle. But the funny thing to watch is my kids. Seeing the transition through that. We got these three little humans that run around my house and don't pay rent. What do you call them? Kids. I love them. And they, uh, uh, we've got these three kids. And when we moved, they were seven, five, and three years old. And so when we move, all they've ever known is high-rise living, right? All they've known is the apartment, urban living. They come to Coleman, Alabama. And watching the transition through their eyes, right? One day, my, my five-year-old's standing in the front lawn. He's got this weird look on his face. He's staring at our house. He's looking around. I'm like, what's on your mind, buddy? He says, yo, dad. <laughs> I'm noticing something. A big gold chain swinging. You know, he says, I'm noticing something. I said, what's that? He says, this house, talking about the house that we had purchased, right? This house, our house. Yeah, what about it? He says, this house was built on a park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I go, no, buddy, it's not a park. This is just our, our yard. <laughs> I said, you see how every little house in our neighborhood has a little strip of grass in front of it? He goes, every house in Alabama gets its own park? <laughs> like, you know what? Yes. Yes. Welcome. So how many of you didn't know you have your own park, right? Be grateful. Yeah. You have to mow your own park. Yeah. I want to talk to you this morning. You know, he said, I'll be all week at Collegiate Week uh, speaking at Falls Creek. What do I, t what do I tell these college students? You know, what do I tell, what, really, I, I, I mean this, something that has been really in my heart and, 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 and on my mind for a long time is what I tell you guys, what do I tell a, a First Baptist at Norman, Oklahoma, and what, what do I tell my own people, it, come on, it, is there great joy in being a Christian? There is, right? I mean, we all get that. What a, what a song. What a, that song is a perfect illustration of it. Is there not great joy? Of course there is, right? Where are the children's workers, youth workers? Raise your hand. Yeah, there you go. Was there great joy in chaperoning youth camp this summer? I heard an amen. Yeah, yeah. Eh. You know, the smell of body odor and Axe body spray. I mean, you, you know, right? There's great joy. Come on, like, like you, you get where I'm going with this. Of course there's great joy in being a Christian. But do we always, like, is it easy? Like, yes, of course, everybody in here knows there's great and deep abiding joy in being a Christian, but there's also, is there not great cost to being a follower of Jesus Christ, right? Is it always easy? Is there not some sacrifice that must be paid? Is there not? So which is it? Is it great? I mean, I mean what, what am I supposed to emphasize? Is it great joy in following Jesus, or is it great 
cost in following Jesus. I wonder if, yeah, I mean, I wonder if we, um, we overemphasize as preachers one side or the other. I know that, 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 that's, that's a tendency that if I'm not careful, I lapse into, right? But even as believers, we, we fall into one side or the other. And obviously, there's, there's great joy in following Jesus, and yet there's great cost in following Jesus. The problem with only focusing on the joy comes with a certain set of problems. Only focusing on the cost comes with a certain set of problems. But when, when, growing up, let me tell you, in a small Baptist church and out in the county in western Kentucky, I assure you, we had cost preachers. You know what I mean? We didn't, no, it wasn't the joy preachers. It was the cost preachers. They would bring these guys in here. And I mean, this was the, we would have youth revivals, right? We would have these youth revivals. And I'm talking about the youth speaker. It wasn't like today with like the hair product and skinny jeans. I'm like, I want to, yeah. The youth speaker they brought in was 400 years old. And this guy would come in here. <laughs> my dad's German and my mom's a brontosaurus. And I mean, it was all about the fear. He would point that finger at us, you know. Do you know, do you know where you'd go if you were to die in your sleep tonight? Do you know where you'd go? Do you know? And I remember as a kid being like, I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I am not going to sleep tonight, you know. <laughs> it was all about the all about the fear, and it always boiled down to the great cost of following Jesus, the cost of being a disciple. The path of a disciple, he would say, is a lonely road. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Your friends, oh, your friends, your friends. Your friends are nothing but minions of the devil who want to drag you down into the pits of debauchery in which they live. Now I'm looking up and down the pew at my friends going, well, he's right, but I... But I like them, you know. I remember being 12 years old, looking at my best friend Jeff in the middle of the church. It's over, Jeff. And poor Jeff, you know, was like, but yo, Tom, I'm a Christian too. Couldn't we like walk this road together? Jeff, don't make this harder than it has to be. You heard Colonel Sanders. It's over, you know, between. And Jeff was imaginary. And I look back, and I look back now. Anybody with me? I look back now and I think, oh, oh, how the pendulum has swung. Now, maybe we're missing some cost preachers. Now, is it not the case? Now you hear, I mean, flip through the television. What do you hear on the television, right? These TV preachers now, gone are the cost preachers. Now, all you hear is the joy. God wants you to follow him. He's, you're never going to have any problems. He wants you to prosper. He wants you to always do good. He wants you to never be sick. It's not his will for you to ever suffer. He wants you to name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. Right? I mean, he, he just wants you to be healthy and happy and place your hand on the nail-scarred hand of Jesus and together you and Jesus just sort of frolic through meadows of happiness as he leads you beside some babbling brook that lights off gingerly into a horizon or something, right? And you look at that and you go, well, I get... Like, who's wrong here? In a sense, neither. They're both on to something. But which is it? Is it great cost? Or is it great joy? Yes, there's great joy in following Jesus. But if your fundamental understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If when you boil it all down, for you, it is the joy of following Jesus, then the red flag there, the danger is the first time you get seriously sick, the first time you get persecuted, the first time you face real trials, you go, hey, I wouldn't promise this now. I was promised joy, you see? But on the other hand, if all you hear is the cost of following Jesus, well then, come on, what, what kind of witness are you going to be? Huh? To your neighbor? To, at work? 
What are you going to share your faith with your friends? Come, you should follow Jesus and then you can find the deep and abiding joy that I have found. <laughs> really, bro? You don't, uh, you don't look like you have joy. I've got joy. Where is it? It's down in my heart. Deep, deep, so deep my joy will never surface. Deep down in my heart, there's my joy. Right? So which is it? Is it great cost or great joy? Of course, Jesus does, in one verse, solve this whole dilemma. He does it in one verse. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. And I want you to see that Jesus, I almost imagine somebody must have brought this up. Much like our soloist who is singing, right? What she's singing about. This is great joy, but she says, for this cause I'd live, for this cause I'd die. Her song perfectly illustrates, perhaps the disciples are starting to realize this as Jesus is preaching and teaching. He's doing, on the one hand, these amazing miracles. He's called them to follow him. They're experiencing great joy. They're also experiencing great cost. Surely someone must have brought this up in conversation. Jesus, in one verse, talks about cost and joy. This is what he says. Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's a simple verse. But it's very rich. It's very complex. To help me illustrate, can we just, um, you, you all seem like the kind of church that wouldn't mind helping your preacher out, being a little bit participatory. I think that, of course, and some of you are way ahead of me, you realize where I'm going, you know what this verse is going to teach us, that is, of course, there's a sense in which it's both cost and joy. It's a costly joy. It's a joyful cost. But I want us to see it. I want us to see it explicitly in the Bible text, in the Scriptures. So maybe could this half of the sanctuary, could this half of the sanctuary, could you help me emphasize, when I'm going to reread this whole passage, and I want you to read it as a cost Christian. And a cost Christian wouldn't say amen. They would say, when I get to the cost part, they would say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Can you give me a yeah, that's right? We'll practice on the count of three. I'll give you a warm-up here, okay? Yeah, that's right. Think angry, pirate. You've, you've got scurvy. You're mad. Okay, you ready? Yeah, that's right. Big, deep, grovelly. You ready? Here we go. Let's practice here. You get to the part about cost I want to hear. Yeah, that's right. One, two, three. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Now over here, would you listen to these grumpy gusses, okay? They've forgotten that to follow Jesus is about great joy, okay? So when I get to the part of the text about joy, I don't want you to say amen. I want you to say, hallelujah, okay? Hallelujah, and the finger waggle helps you hit the high note, okay? So hallelujah, okay, you ready? So on the count of three, hit me with the hallelujah. Here we go, one, two, three. Hallelujah! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're perfect, okay? Now here's what I want you to do. <clears throat> When I reread the passage, I, when I get to the part about the cost, uh, uh, when I get to the part about the joy, I want to hear the hallelujah. When I get to the part about the cost, I want to hear a yeah, that's right. Yell it out loud. Uh, <clears throat> some of you, are, perhaps, uh, uh, you're introverts. Uh, you're very concerned that you will yell it out at the wrong time. I know, I know, that's a legit concern. Here's what I'm going to do for you. When I get to the part that I think it illustrates the joy, and then when I get to the part that illustrates the cost, I will ever so subtly, for I'm known for subtlety, 
I will ever so subtly hint when I think your moment is, but I think they're both here in the passage. You ready? Let's see if we understand this verse. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Any questions? Everybody got it? Jesus says, like a guy looking for, you know, that's the treasure buried in a field. He thinks, I don't know, maybe a field would be a good investment with my hard-earned denarii. Uh, the stock market's been so crazy. Perhaps real estate's the way I should invest my money. And even though I know the owner of this field, I know what he's priced it at. I know it, it I mean, it would, it would cost, I don't even know. There's probably no way. But think, if I, if I own this field, I could put a barn over there. He's surveying the field. He's just walking through. He's daydreaming about it. You know, I could put a barn over there. I could put a I could put some irrigation over there, if that's been invented yet. I could do a lot with this field, but it's just so, you know, it's so outrageously expensive. The odds that I would be able to, the odds that I'd be able to procure this field are like, what's that? At first he thinks he's tripped over the protruding root from a tree, but there can be no root, for there are no trees, for it is a field. (laughs) Textual criticism. So what could it be? He goes in for a closer inspection. He dusts off the corner of what looks like a, could, I mean, could this be a, is this a, pause. We need to leave him here to understand some historical data that will make you appreciate why this guy's mind was suddenly blown. Back in the day, you didn't have a banking system that could keep your money safe, and you think we live in violent times now. Back then, you've read your Bibles, right? Uh, They're always being overrun. Right, All these violent, warring factions, the Amalekites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Stalactites and Stalagmites and the Parasites, yeah, all these different nights. Right? If you knew that a thundering horde army invasion was coming down the mountain and you had no power against them, the Philistines are coming. Our spy, our advanced scouts have told us the Philistines are coming. They wouldn't just wipe everyone out. They wouldn't just kill everybody in the village. No, what would they do? You've read this. There was a concept called exile. They would take everybody in the village, they would plunder everything, including the humans, and take them off into slavery, and there they would be. Until some bigger, badder group of people came and wiped them out, and then eventually you'd be able to come back. Everybody with me? So there was this uh, plan they had, right? And people realized early on, when you know you have no power against this this massive army, this invading group that's coming at you, what do you do? You take all the riches, not just of a family, not just of a little neighborhood, but the entire group, the entire village, right? They come together and they put all the riches in one central location, right? Bring the gold, quick, they're coming, there's no time to lose. All the diamonds, all the money, all you know, put it all in there, put it in the treasure chest, bury it in the ground, right? And then when they're taken off into captivity, yes, they must go, and yes, that's terrible, but then, should the day ever come when they are then overrun and they're able to come back, right? Then what? Then they've got a little nest egg that they can rebuild their city. Their city treasury will still be there waiting for them. Now, it wasn't common. It was almost like an urban legend that there existed out there, somewhere in the wilderness, out there, there existed these ancient treasure troves that like no one had ever come back and claimed. It could be that everyone died in captivity and that's it. And with it died the knowledge of where this wealth was. It could be, are some of you like this? 
they just forgot where they buried it. Anyway, <laughs> I'm telling you, we're rich somewhere in Montana. Uh-oh, you know, right? Well, the rule was simple. There was, this, there was this knowledge that these things were out there, right? This guy had heard about these urban legends his whole life. The rule was simple. Whoever owned the property quite naturally owns everything in it, right? The best modern day I could... The best modern day illustration I could think of would be if, um, if uh, one of my church members decides they're going to take a vacation out here to Oklahoma and they're uh, having a good time and, and they, they travel to South Oklahoma and they're having a great time and they're living it up. They're loving it. And one of my Alabama church members gets him a big old, big old 10 gallon hat on a five gallon head. Is that the joke? You know? And he's got there and he's, he's, uh, he's having a good time and he passes an old uh, ranch and it's for sale. And they're driving back to the airport, and he says, hey, kids, what about this? I could be a rancher out here in Oklahoma. And they're like, Dad, please get in the van. Like, okay. No, get my picture. You know, woohoo, we can buy this here ranch. <laughs> he says, oh, honey, it sure would be something to buy this ranch. Oh, well, we've got to get back on the flight. And just absentmindedly kicks a rock on his way out, and oil shoots up. <laughs> honey, call the bank, right? <laughs> This is for sale. No one knows about it. But what? The mineral rights belong. And obviously, I'm, I'm way out of my depth here. That's never stopped me. I don't know if that's how it works. But it's an illustration, right? The idea being that whoever owns the field owns this great treasure in it. Well, this guy knows all that. Now, we do too. So let's rejoin him in the action. Could this be one of those ancient treasure chests that, like, nobody's? I mean, is this? Dust it off. Lifts it up. It's heavy. But that's a good sign when dealing with treasure. Let's open it up. It's locked. So he backs up. Sandals, you know. Kicks the lock off. And there. Inside is gold and diamonds. And, and, and suddenly he does some quick math and he realizes this is not the wealth of a family. This is certainly not the wealth of an individual. This is the wealth of an entire village. And suddenly he's looking at this. This is more wealth than he could spend in a lifetime of lifetimes, right? This is like billions with a B. This is trillions with a tra, okay? And he's looking at this going, he would never in a million years be able to ever, ever spend all this. This is, more, this is game changing. This is not mine, but I've got to have it. How can, I, how can I get this treasure? If he just takes it and runs away with it, he can't do that. Why? The eighth commandment is why. That's called stealing. You can't do that but I've got to have it, and nobody knows about it, so what, what's a way I could get, I could lay hold of this treasure? How could I take possession of this treasure, but I don't want to steal it, when suddenly, bing, light bulb. Well, for him, <laughs> candle. I mean, historically accurate. I've got it, I've got it. I would have to sell, yeah, I would. Okay, okay, I think, so he digs a new hole, covers it up, goes home that night, and starts liquidating everything he owns. Puts his, puts his camel on Craigslist. <laughs> it's got big chrome hooves on it, brand new. I just bought, you know, uh, sells that. His wife's going out that. I, I always wonder, did he tell his wife about his big plan? I don't know, you know? Is she going out that night, like gonna go out, put on my favorite pearl necklace? I'm selling your necklace, what? Trust me, woman, all right? His, his kids are playing with toys. Daddy sells all his toys, sells everything. Where, I mean, what do they do? They, they, everything. You understand? He is selling everything because he has faith in a coming thing that nobody around him can see yet. 
Everything. He's sure of it. It's certain. It's not a guess. He's not gambling. It's not blind faith. He knows of something that's coming worth selling everything here and now to lay hold of. So he goes to the owner of the field, knocks on the door. Yeah. Hear about that field. Oh, now listen, this is a small town, and I have a pretty good idea what your net worth is. You're not going to be able to sell that field. You, honestly, to buy that field, you'd have, to, you'd have to sell everything you own. That's what I've done. You serious? Yeah. Yeah, here's, here's everything I could get in cash. I was able to liquidate all this. Everything else, I'll just sign it over to you. Like, like everything, everything. Here's my lunch. It's now yours. <laughs> Here's my, um, here's my sandal, <laughs> here's my other sandal, here's a third backup sandal that I always carry, I might have a blowout. Uh, here's the deed to my house, you are now the owner of my house, my family will have everything moved out by midnight, and um, I guess that's it, all of my clothes, oh, here's my toga, the guy's like, no, no, keep the toga, <laughs> you know, everything, everything. Where'd they sleep that night? Under a bridge? Is the family, I mean, are, are the kids asking him, hey dad, great plan, now we're homeless. Where'd they, uh, where'd they, what'd they eat? Soup kitchen? Probably homeless shelter. Everybody see the point? They sold everything. And the whole time, he's starting to take persecution. People aren't, people aren't understanding. What's going on? You had a good family. You had a good life. Why be so radical? And the whole time, he's just got this smile on his face. <laughs> now, you know where this is going. It, of course, wasn't until years later once that treasure began to be liquidated, that they were able to rebuy and purchase all these things a hundredfold. There's no comparison, right? He had found a richer treasure. Jim Elliott says it this way, he's no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain that which he can never lose. For the Christians in the room, listen, there's no, we talk about the cost of discipleship. We should think long and hard about the cost of non-discipleship because you have stumbled over the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have found in Jesus a richer treasure, one that fadeth not away. Worth giving everything. And to those in the room who would say, I, I feel very challenged by this. I, I, you know, I hope, I hope Jesus never asked me to give up everything. Come on. You're a Christian. Everything. Uh, 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 how can I illustrate this? Um, uh, Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The entire earth is the Lord's, the world and everything in it belong to Him. So just as a little survey, show of hands, how many of you own a cell phone? Go ahead, show of hands. Good. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The entire earth is the Lord's, the world and everything in it belong to Him. So just as like a survey, just show of hands, how many of you own, say, a cell phone? Go ahead, put your hand up. Yeah. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the entire earth is the Lord's, the world and everything in it technically belong to him. So just by show of hands, don't raise your hand. It's obviously a, a <laughs> rhetorical trap. Yeah, yeah, it's a trap, yeah. Well, then you're right. They, the bill may go to AT&T or Verizon, but the phone is property of God. Do you understand? If you're a Christian, everything you own belongs to him. So you got to ask yourself, WW, what would, what would WWJ Snapchat? <laughs> what would, you know, what, how do we use our phones? For the glory of God. The, the clothes I'm wearing belong to God. My wife and I own a Honda Odyssey minivan. But technically, that belongs to Jesus Christ. Everything we have is property of Him. He owns it all. 
Don't think when you hear the sermon preached on the rich young ruler that, oh, he had to sell everything he had. I hope God never asked that of me. What are you talking about? That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He owns everything. That transaction's already settled. There's nothing we have that's not his. And to receive the gospel, to receive new life in Jesus Christ, theologians call this the glad exchange. It's great joy. It's great joy to stumble upon the good news to be found by him. Well, I think that on one layer, it is perfectly appropriate to, you know, just sort of take the text straight just like that. Uh, kingdom of heaven, in other words, Jesus is saying, uh, uh, it, it's worth everything. Do you remember when Peter asks him, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. And he says, hey, there's nothing you haven't given up that won't be repaid hundredfold, right? And I think this is an important lesson this morning on discipleship. Fair? The, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ is a costly joy. It is a joyful cost. Is there some recalcitrance on your part? Is there some hesitance? Are you holding back? Do you need the words of that song that was sung earlier, words of surrender this morning? Then that's your application. But you have to wonder if this text doesn't also work on a deeper level, and I just want to say this in closing. Don't you have to wonder, doesn't your mind go here? If, if when Jesus told this, he, was, he wasn't that far away from his own um, Passion Week, where he was, uh, went through a mockery of a trial. He was whipped and beaten. You know the story. They put a crown of thorns on him. The soldiers mocked him. They hung him on a Roman cross, and he bled there and died. And Christians believe he, the wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus, and Jesus was being the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for all who believe. You wonder if this doesn't work on a deeper level. If <clears throat> What if what if Jesus was telling this parable about himself, right? In other words, what if he was the one who, though he was rich, what if he's the man in the story? What if, what if though he was rich, he gave up everything, he sold off everything, if you will, to buy, to purchase, to redeem, to pay for, to acquire a big old field called planet Earth? Hmm? What if he was the one who, though he had everything, sold off everything, if you will, to purchase, to redeem, to pay for this big old field called planet Earth. If I'm right, and if Jesus is telling this story about himself, then to extend the metaphor, that means he was the one who, though he had everything, sold everything, gave up everything to pay for this field called planet Earth, then that would make the treasure dead and buried in the field. You. And me. You say, wait a minute, wait. let me see if I understand this. You, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jesus, you would, you would give up your heaven's throne room and come and be born in a manger in Bethlehem? That's right. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus. You mean to tell me you would, you would take off your robes of glory and have a mocking robe put on you by the soldiers at your cruci... That's right. Do you mean to tell me you would take off your rightful crown of glory and instead have a crown of thorns driven into your brow? That's right. Do you mean you would leave your throne of heaven and have your arms stretched out and nailed to a Roman cross and Jesus answered not with his lips but with his life? I would give up the universe before I lost any one of you. Because you are what he treasures. You are a treasure in the eyes of God. You think, well, no, 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 no. maybe dead and buried. That's right. That's what Ephesians says. Don't misunderstand me. There's nothing in us that has inherent worth. We're given worth because we're what he treasures. You say, well, that sounds kind of man-centered. And I would agree with you if it weren't for Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Why? It says, who? For the joy set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of the, God, the, right hand of the throne of God. Now, can you imagine with me what does that do to our hearts to know that, that we were loved, though we had no worthiness of our own, though we were in rebellion against God? As Ephesians says, we are dead and buried and completely unable to get to God. He loved us. And he hung there and he bled and he died on that cross for the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? Seeing a lost sinner welcomed into the family of God. And he bought that with his own precious blood on the cross. So is it great cost or great joy? I hope that we leave here this morning empowered this week with a sense of the costly joy of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, grant that you would give us a fresh passion for paying any cost because of the deep and abiding joy we find in You. And thank You, O Lord, that You paid the ultimate cost for the joy set before You of glorifying God and building a great family of God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Lord, I pray the Gospel would sink deep into all of our hearts that it might invigorate us for the week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of response and invitation. Your dear pastor will uh, lead us through this time, but uh, everybody has a response. You, uh, and, and, and it's our church's custom. Folks can respond by coming forward and making a public decision. Folks can respond right where they're seated. And folks can respond by tuning out this holy moment and going ahead and thinking about lunch. I only ask you respond always in one of the first two ways, never the third. Respond by coming forward or respond right where you're seated. But let's never miss a chance to respond when God speaks to his people.